0: The case information provided during this program includes details of violent criminal acts and may upset, shock, and offend some listeners. Any named suspects should be considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. This episode is part one in a series focused on Midwest murders. The crimes covered in this multi-episode podcast begin in the south side of Chicago, with a crime scene that one veteran Chicago detective describes as extraordinary and something he has never seen before. How the multiple murders and crimes covered in this series linked together is truly stunning. Half of the murders in this series are still unsolved. It would be hard to imagine that any of the victims in these crimes could have guessed that their lives were going to change so quickly or that they would somehow end up associated with each other, some linked by the killer and some linked by the victim. This is True Crime Takedown, and I'm your host, Troy Daniels. We have a guest host with us during this series focused on Midwest murders. Her name is Dawn Coyne Trimble and we've worked together on Crime Stoppers for many years. As part of my law enforcement duties, I was the law enforcement coordinator for Champaign County, Illinois Crime Stoppers and recruited Dawn to get on our local board. I've been fortunate to work with her at the state and national level for Crime Stoppers as well. Her day job is a successful real estate agent and one way she serves her community is through Crime Stoppers. Don, how did you get focused on this chaotic series of crimes and homicides that happened in central Illinois?
1: Troy, this is actually a local case for us, and I've been following this in the media for quite a while. And it did seem like they had a lot of good information about this case, but it still remained unsolved. And family members of one of the victims have been very vocal about wanting to get this case solved and bring some closure to them. And once we started looking into the double homicide, we found that there was a series of violent crimes associated with this.
0: We begin part one of the Midwest murder series with a vehicle being stopped by an Illinois State Police Trooper because the vehicle had tinted windows that were too dark. This traffic stop was on Thursday, June 21st, 2007, at about 8.45 a.m. on Interstate 57 between Tuscola and Posotum, Illinois. The stopped car was a silver Infinity G35 luxury vehicle and was registered to a guy named Arnie Graves, who lived in Chicago, Illinois, which is about two hours north.
1: For our listeners, I-57 is mostly a north-south interstate in Illinois, and it's a primary route for people to travel back and forth from Chicago to central to southern Illinois.
0: At the time of the stop, the car was occupied by two males. During the middle of the traffic stop, the vehicle fled from the stop when the trooper asked the two males to get out of the car. Unfortunately, the vehicle got away from the trooper. Later that day, after the two occupants committed numerous felonies, including home invasion and the shooting of a police officer, the two males were involved in a high-speed chase with officers about 10 miles south of the original traffic stop. The vehicle they were in crashed at Arcola, Illinois, with one of the males immediately taken into custody and the other male fleeing into a bank and taking numerous hostages. Officers discovered that neither of the two males that were in the Silver Infinity that the original trooper tried to stop was Arnie Graves, the registered owner of the vehicle.
1: So Illinois State Police contacted troopers from the Northern District at this point and asked them to go to the address where the vehicle was registered on the west side of Chicago. Their goal was to find out if Arnie was okay and why these two suspects had his vehicle about two hours south of Chicago.
0: When the Illinois State Troopers went to that address, they found it was the home of the parents of Arnie Graves. Illinois State Police Troopers were directed by family members over to Arnie Graves' address at 4101 South Michigan. Arnie Graves lived on the third floor of the building. The condo was locked and an officer had to crawl through the window to open the door. Once inside the condo, officers found Arnie Graves lying dead on his bedroom floor. Arnie was naked and had clearly been murdered. Officers sealed the crime scene and called for detectives. Chicago Police Detective Timothy Nolan was an investigator on this case and Don and I were able to talk with him. Detective Nolan is now retired, but spent 30 years at the Chicago Police Department with many of them in the detective division. Detective Nolan has a ton of investigative experience, doesn't he, Don?
1: Absolutely, Troy. Detective Nolan started as a Chicago police officer in 1986, and he was assigned to the south side of Chicago, which is known for its significant gang crime. So during his career, he was a member of the Chicago Police Department gang crimes unit, rifleman on the hostage barricade terrorist team. He was promoted to detective in 1996, where he was assigned to Area 1 violent crimes. And here he investigated all violent crimes, but primarily homicides. He was certified as a fire investigator and worked in the bomb and arson section. And certainly this is a cop who had seen just about everything in his 30-year career.
0: So we asked Detective Nolan when he was first aware of the case involving the murder of Arnie Graves.
2: I got up that morning. I was working the afternoons the previous night that Wednesday. And I got up that morning and turned on WGN, which was the local news here. And they were leading in the story of what was going on down south. In fact, they had already had video footage of a standoff. They had reported that there was a high-speed chase down south and that there was a standoff down in a a bank down in Arcola. And I didn't really think anything of it. So when I went to work uh, 4 o'clock that afternoon after um, working in the office and going to dinner, I received a call at about 8.30 that evening of uh, a person dead over at 4101 South Michigan.
0: When Detective Nolan arrived at the murder scene with two rookie detectives, he found that the homicide occurred inside a condo on the third floor of a building that was quite nice. It had been remodeled, or in other words, it was a gentrified building.
2: My partner was off that day, so I actually had two brand new detectives with me. When we got there, the address of recurrence was 4101 South Michigan which was in the 2nd District. But the 2nd District was getting gentrified. All the projects at that time had been leveled. The building was very nice looking. You can stand in the middle of the street and look straight north and see downtown from there. And that's how I basically got the job. They called and said that uh, there was a person up on the third floor in a condo that was dead. The sergeant had approached me and said, did you see all that stuff that jumped off downstate? with the high speed chase and the the bank takeover. And I said, yeah, I did. I saw it on the news this morning. He had said, well, those offenders from that incident uh, were in a car and that car came back to the person that lives up on the third floor at 4101 South Michigan. His name's Arnie Graves, but Arnie Graves wasn't downstate and he wasn't in custody. So they had said that the state police down south around Champaign had called the Northern District of Illinois State Police and asked them to check on uh, the well-being. So when they ran the plate, it came back to an address on the west side. And when they went there, actually, it was the home of Archie Graves and his daughter, Angela.
0: The address that the registration on Arnie's car came back to was actually his dad, Archie's house. So the troopers talked to Arnie's family and asked them about Arnie's car.
2: They said they told the the family why they were there, that Arnie's car was down south and had they spoken with Arnie. Well, they hadn't. They tried to call. And when they didn't call, his sister, Angelique, her son, who was a teenager, and the Northern District Illinois State Police went over to 4101 South Michigan to do a well-being check. At that time, once they got into the building, it had a courtyard much like an embassy suite. So once they got up onto the the landing, they they knocked on the door and there was no answer. So um, actually, there was a window that was unlocked, and Angelique's son saw his uncle on the floor, unresponsive, and that's when they call the Chicago police. After Detective Nolan arrived
0: at the scene, one of the first things he learned was that Chicago police officers were called to that very building in the early morning hours on a report that someone heard gunshots. So on the same day that the two suspects were stopped in Arnie's car in central Illinois, someone heard gunshots early that same morning in Arnie's building.
2: What had happened was when I pulled up, the sergeant came and said that they had actually been there before the previous night, or actually it would be the early morning of that same day. It was now 8.30 on Thursday, but they actually said that they were at that address at about 1.30 a.m., and they said they responded to a shots fired call. He said a, a second district squad car went over there. They couldn't into the building. So, you know, they did the typical police routine of pushing every doorbell in there until somebody buzzed them in and somebody buzzed them in. They searched the entire courtyard. Um, They went up on all three floors. Um, They asked for a call back to the caller that had made the call and uh, they weren't picking up. It was an out-of-state cell phone from Pennsylvania or Ohio, I believe, but they never – they never picked up. So once the officers secured the uh, the courtyard and didn't see anything, they just left and coded it out. 19 Paul, no service necessary. So when they called us at 8:30, the police were already in the the, uh, the condo building in the courtyard itself. They had opened the front door for us. I believe that um, the family, um, Angelique or her son had opened the door and kept it open for the Chicago police when the initial squad car arrived. So by the time we got there, there were, there were several squad cars there. The family was there, although I didn't see them, and the door was unlocked. So when we walked up to the apartment, I could tell that, or the condo rather, the first door required to be buzzed in or a key. Then there was a foyer with another door that didn't require a key, and then as we walked in, there was two small elevators and a staircase off to the left. So we decided to take the staircase off to see if there was anything in there and just get a basically lay of the land. I had never been in the building before, even as a patrolman, and I was in I was in that district for ten or eleven years, and I couldn't even recall that building, so I wasn't sure whether it was just a gentrified building or brand new. Anyways, when we got up to the third floor, I could hear the radios cracking, and when we finally got into the the courtyard of the building, I could see that a sergeant and two patrolmen were standing at a door outside of, um, I believe it was 310 or 301, so when uh, we got there, I asked, uh, I asked them, you know, what was going on, and they said, well, we responded to this call, the sister had called us, and said that her brother was inside the condo. We couldn't open the door, so they sent an officer through the window to Arnie Graves' master bedroom, and that's where he, that's where he laid. So they sent an officer through the door, uh, he saw him on the ground, he pulled his gun, and then he just went right around the corner and undid the front door so his partner and the sergeant could come through and sweep the condo to make sure that it was empty. Once they had done that, they immediately stepped out and called it in and said that, you know, that it was a death investigation. Now, they had taped off the, the downstairs perimeter. Uh, they put red tape. We have red tape that signifies it's the immediate crime scene. They put red tape across the entranceway to his condo and uh, they secured it until we got there.
0: One of the most important things that can be done in an investigation is the canvas of the area to look for any possible witnesses or evidence. There are countless criminal investigations that result in an arrest because of the thorough work of officers looking for any bit of information or evidence that can tie suspects to a scene.
2: I had two brand new detectives with me and they were really, really excellent policemen and I knew that they were going to be excellent detectives because, you know, a lot of guys that come in and get into homicides, you know, they're usually pretty much type A personalities, you know, and they're really go-getters and they were perfectionists. But these guys, you know, they grabbed their they grabbed their notebooks and they were all about the canvas, which was, you know, one of the most important things you could ever do in a, in a homicide scene is to canvas that area and canvas it well. Uh, so they had done that, but as opposed to having a, a homicide on a street where, you have to, at any window or door that can see that crime scene, has to be knocked on. Somebody has to be talked to. If They're not home. They got to go back. This scene was an inside scene, an interior scene. He was inside his own home. Still, sometimes a, a canvas needed to be done. For the buildings, they may not have seen the crime, but people that faced his windows, maybe they saw a car, maybe they saw somebody leaving. So they, that had to be canvassed along with the entire building of what they heard. Once the
0: canvas outside the condo was completed, the detectives went inside the condo to do an initial assessment of the crime scene. Once inside, Detective Nolan could not believe what he saw. In all the years of being a Chicago police officer, Detective Nolan had never witnessed a crime
2: scene like this. So anyways, when they had finished that, I brought them into the crime scene. I let them go in first, and we only had to take about two or three steps into the doorway in the hallway of this condo. And just off to the left was Arnie's master bedroom. And as soon as I had uh, looked in there, I saw that Arnie was on the floor completely naked. He was on his back. His legs were spread at a 45 degree angle. His arms were out to his side. It reminded me of. Michelangelo's Vitruvian man if you've ever seen that design with the circle and the triangle and his sketches he was pretty much laid out like that his body was completely dusted with some kind of powder it reminded me of an African tribal warrior that you would see on the National Geographic when they go deep into the Amazon or into Africa his whole body was completely powdered with this substance I could see that there was a gunshot hemorrhage right in his left eye near his nose. He had long hair and I could see that there was blood streaming from his forehead down into the carpet. Interestingly enough, when I looked at his hands, the beige carpet that he was laying on, right by his hands, the carpet was lighter there. And as I got closer, I could smell bleach. On his chest was a large 10-inch butcher knife laying horizontal across his chest. And propped up by his left shoulder was a DVD movie, Hannibal. And on his chest was also the DVD movie, Silence of the Lambs. There was a a white note that had um, childlike scribbling on it that said, help me. The Devil 666. There was also a Post-it note that was stuck on the uh, the white note that didn't say anything. There was a dime that was placed on his penis. There was a Hallmark birthday card just below where the DVD was sitting up by his shoulder. There was a Hallmark uh, card there. So once I had had the, the body photographed and the hands bagged, I turned the card over and it was a birthday card to Arnie Graves.
0: There was a message written in blood on the card, making it look like Arnie was leaving a final message that his friend had killed him.
2: So I looked back down at Arnie's hands and I saw that one finger had blood on it. It seemed like the killer had dipped the finger into blood and then drew this out on the card. His head was facing south, his feet were facing north. There was a glass shelf to the north of his feet and I could see blood spatter on the glass shelf, but interestingly enough, it wasn't on top of the shelf, it was underneath the shelf, which told me that he was hit down on the ground because he had an indentation by his left hairline I think he was hit there, but there was also a stab wound in his left clavicle. Now, there wasn't much blood in there. I thought that it may have been postmortem, but I couldn't really tell initially. But there was blood cast off up underneath the shells, which told me that Arnie was already down on the ground and he was being hit more. I don't know if he was still alive at the time, but obviously he was either being hit more or he was being stabbed more. I couldn't really tell until I got the medical examiner's protocol to see the direction of that stab wound in his clavicle. Interestingly enough, his bedroom was immaculate. I mean, it was absolutely stunning. In fact, the whole condo was stunning. It was a, it was just impeccable. It was, it was pristinely clean, like model clean. Like this guy was completely, obsessive about everything. It was like having Felix Unger in your house. His closet was impeccable. His drawers were impeccable. Everything was organized. I noticed there was an iPad cord that was laying on the nightstand, but there was no device there. So we start from the body, take a look at it without touching it because the crime scene investigators still weren't there yet. So I don't really want to touch anything. I really don't want to be walking around yet Nobody else is coming in there but us. I started to take a step back, and I noticed that over by the window where the police officers and the nephews came through, there was blood smear up on a linen shade. It told me that whoever was there had pulled that shade over to see if the coast was clear. That was my assumption anyways, that somebody had looked out there to see if somebody heard anything. When those two shots went off, I think the killer may have looked out that window to see if anybody had responded. It very well could have been that the police were there at 1.30 and he was still there. As we came out of his room, there was a trail of soft scrub leaving the bedroom and then going into the first bathroom off to the left. And inside there, it looked like somebody had hastily tried to clean up this mess because there seemed like there was blood smear on the toilet and at the base of the sink. As we followed it out, there was a bedroom off to the left. I went in there and Arnie was probably using it for storage. His weight sets were in there and some of his clothes were in there. I saw the bottom of a bottle. Uh, sticking out from between some clothes and a blanket. And when I lifted up the blanket, it was a bottle, an empty bottle of Clorox bleach that had blood smear on the bottom of it. So this told me that what the bleach that I had smelled inside the scene by his body, this offender had poured bleach on his hand to try and get rid of any DNA, which is a fallacy. A good lab can still extract good DNA from evidence that had been doused with bleach. So this guy clearly showed thought to it. So I knew right away that this this whole thing just seemed hokey to me. This wasn't I had never seen anything like this, this whole boogeyman horror show occult thing, you know, real serial killers, at least in Chicago that I was dealing with, don't do this. Yeah, you know, the serial killers that I had dealt with were killing prostitutes because they were an easy mark. They could get them alone. They could get them in a dark place. So this was just completely far-fetched to me. So as we traced the soft scrub out, I saw that the empty bottle of it was in the waste paper basket. And I went into the open area, which had the kitchen and the living room. And as when I went over to the, the kitchen counter, I noticed that the set of knives that was, was in the hold where one of them was missing. So it told me that this killer probably, uh, as soon as Arnie opened up the door, and there, there's, there's more to this story that you probably don't know, but you will know uh, after this, is that this killer stopped what he was doing, grabbed that knife, and then went back into that room. He didn't bring that knife with him because the knife that was on Arnie's chest matched the one that was in the kitchen. It was manic. There was no rhyme or reason to it. Other than trying to stage this body, it was a manic attempt at trying to clean the scene.
0: The detectives did find some items inside the condo that did not initially make sense to them.
2: There were some shoes that were lined up in the hallway, and one of the pairs of gym shoes had blood smear on it. Not only that, in the small condo, There was a stackable washer and dryer system in a narrow closet. The top was closed. I opened it up, and we found two deodorant roll-ons, flip-flops, a pair of gym shorts, uh, and a T-shirt inside this washing machine. So it was just a mystery to us at the time what this meant. I eventually learned later on what had probably happened or what I assume had happened.
0: Based on what Detective Nolan found at the scene, he believed that whoever killed Arnie did not force their way into the condo.
2: That was about it. That was, there was no forced entry in this door below, so nobody defeated the door downstairs and nobody defeated this door at his condo. There was no forced entry. So this guy was let in, either he had a key or he was let in.
0: This was a very complex crime scene with a lot of evidence that needed to be collected and processed. So Chicago police brought out their best crime scene resources in the hopes of finding any evidence that could tie the suspects to this violent scene.
2: The scene took quite some time. We have evidence technicians that usually go to any kind of crime scene. And then we have a mobile crime lab. And the mobile crime lab is staffed by some heavy-hitting evidence technicians. Got people that really have a long time on this. And they handle major incidents, major shootings, murders, police shootings, stuff like that. That's all they do is these major crimes. And then we had an evidence command vehicle that was brand new. So it was up to the sergeant of the evidence technicians to whether he would send out the mobile crime web or not or he would send out the big vans the big command vans that you see like the FBI use well we had one of those now so this sergeant had decided to bring out the mobile command van that had about six forensic investigators and himself so they went in there with you know overalls on and hair netted and I walked them through, I told them what I wanted, what I needed, and they did that. While working this scene,
0: Detective Nolan was notified by the Illinois State Police that the two males that had Arnie's car down in central Illinois were William B. Thompson, age 26, and Yusuf Kareem Brown, age 23. The Illinois State Police did not know of any connections between these two and Arnie Graves. Detective Nolan left the scene and went to the station and interviewed Arnie Graves' sister, Angelique Graves.
2: When I interviewed Angelique Graves after the scene, I brought her back to my office and she uh, she was crying and very upset. Then I asked Angie, I said, do you know William Thompson? or Yusef Brown. And she started crying and she said, oh my God, oh my God, did they kill my brother? And I said, I don't know that, but they're the ones downstate with your brother's car. So I said, does your brother have a relationship with them? And she said, absolutely not. She goes, my father forbade us. And the neighborhood that they lived in was very, very rough themselves. They were over on the west side. They had the nuclear family at home and they had a You know, a father that was a former Marine, and he kept their nose straight and narrow. They had all gone to college. They were unlike a lot of the people in the neighborhood. And Angelique was adamant. She goes, Arnie would never associate with them people. She goes, we used to go to the same church. She goes, but as we got older, those boys started to get wild. They had no family at home, and their grandma was raising them, and they just started to get wild. My parents never let us off the block. So they kind of went in different paths. That's what happened. She said, you know, Arnie had called his sister a couple hours before he died at about 11 o'clock. And she always spoke to Arnie at night. Every night she spoke to him. They were very close. And Angie was talking with her brother, stating that he was going to give the call after he got up the phone with her. And she said, good night. And they said, good night. And that was it.
0: Detective Nolan spoke with Arnie's best friend. It was clear that his friend had more information that would shed light on who may have been at the condo before the murder of Arnie Graves.
2: Arnie Graves was like a yard superintendent for a railroad company. He was kind of like an air traffic controller of a rail yard. He usually worked midnights, but after every shift, he would go and see his parents. So a couple days before the murder, Arnie left his parents' house and made a phone call to his best friend that wrote him the card, the birthday card. Arnie had made a, made a cell phone call as he pulled away from his parents' house. And he was talking on the phone when he heard Arnie say, hey, how's it going? Long time no see. Arnie was talking with somebody out on the street. So Arnie said, hey, I'll call you back. So after about 20 or 30 minutes, When Arnie was driving back over to the south side where he lived, he said, you'll never guess who I just ran into, Billy Thompson. And Billy Thompson is William Thompson. Arnie lived two short blocks away from where William Thompson and Yusuf Brown lived. And in fact, William Thompson and Yusuf Brown's grandmother went to the same church as Arnie Graves' mother in fact, they all attended the same church. And in fact, they were in the choir together at this church. So they knew each other. These families knew each other.
0: So, so it's your it's your kind of guess that it was just a chance meeting that he hadn't seen him in a long time. And that may have connected them before this homicide at some point in time.
2: It did connect them because Wednesday morning, Arnie had called up his best friend and said, William came over last night, and apparently he spent the night. Uh, Arnie Graves was gay. Arnie Graves basically told his best friend that they had had relations that Tuesday night. Arnie says, Billy looked so cute. He had left his clothes and then put on my T-shirt and shorts, and he left his gym shoes and uh, wore my flip-flops. He looked like he was going to the beach. He goes, but before he left, he said something weird, and I didn't quite understand it. He said, that was the first and last time that will ever happen. Arnie didn't really think anything of it, but it sounded very foreboding.
1: So Arnie had told his friend that William Thompson was wearing t shirt shorts and flip flops when William left the next day after spending the night with him. And if you remember, detectives found a T-shirt, pair of shorts and flip flops in the washer at Arnie's condo when they were processing the murder scene.
0: Exactly. Arnie's friend also specifically told Detective Nolan about a conversation that he had with Arnie on the late night, early morning, just before Arnie was murdered. Arnie spoke with his friend by phone and told his friend that William Thompson was coming over to see him, and Arnie was really excited to see him. Detective Nolan stressed that since there was no forced entry, he assumes the suspect was let into the condo or had a key. Detective Nolan also believes that Arnie knew who was coming over when he was murdered because he believes that Arnie was naked when the suspect entered.
2: There was a shower cap on the floor of the bathroom, so Arnie had gotten out of the shower. And had rushed to the door and opened up the door and probably had a gun shoved into his face. Because one of the wounds was a gunshot wound to the outside right thigh that transversed his thigh and went into his groin, which probably brought him down to his knees or dropped him. And then another one was shot right into the face. So this was was very quick. This was very quick.
0: Also, when William Thompson was captured after his violent crime spree in central Illinois, he was wearing clothes that were
2: tied to Arnie. When William Thompson was uh, subsequently apprehended downstate, he had these fine designer clothes on. He had, you know, $150 jeans on that didn't fit. He had alligator boots on that weren't his. He had a fine silk shirt on that wasn't his. They were all Arnie gray. In fact, the Illinois State Police found Arnie Graves' DNA on the socks that William Thompson was wearing. And unfortunately for me, that was the only evidence that I got connecting them to my scene because my evidence recovering team didn't find a thing. They didn't find a thing. They didn't find a print. They didn't find a DNA match. They found nothing. I just I just couldn't believe it.
0: And you know that they did everything they could because they brought in the big guns for this one, and it still
2: just didn't work out. Yeah. Well, you know, and sometimes it happens. You know, ju- you know uh, this is my thing about all of these wrongful convictions. Just because the body doesn't have the person's DNA in them doesn't mean that they didn't kill them. It doesn't mean anything. Sometimes DNA is missed. Evidence is always missed because that's why they call it latent because it can't be seen. Um, And this guy guy wiped off a lot. He may have been wearing gloves, I don't know.
1: So at least when William Thompson was arrested, they found some of Arnie's DNA on a piece of the clothes he was wearing.
0: So here is an overview of this case based on interviews we've conducted and local news reports. An Illinois State Police Trooper stopped a Silver Infinity luxury car on I-57 traveling southbound away from and about two hours south of Chicago. After asking the passengers to get out of the car, the two men fled in the vehicle. Illinois State Police went to the condo of the registered owner, Arnie Graves. The condo was at 4101 South Michigan in Chicago. It was on the third floor. It was locked with no signs of forced entry. Police found Arnie Graves lying dead on his bedroom floor. He was on his back with his legs spread with his arms up and out to his side. He was naked except for wearing shower shoes. There was a shower cap found on the floor of the bathroom. There was white powder that was spread all over his body. He had been stabbed, beaten, and shot twice, including once in the head. There was a large butcher knife laying across Arnie's chest. It was later learned that the knife came from a set in Arnie's kitchen. There were two serial killer DVDs laying on Arnie. There was a note found on Arnie's body that said, Help me, the devil, 666. There was a birthday card on Arnie from a friend. It appeared the suspect dipped Arnie's finger in blood and wrote on the card to try to make it look like Arnie was leaving a message that his friend was actually the one who killed him. There was a dime found on his penis. Detective Nolan smelled bleach and it looked like the killer had attempted to clean Arnie's hands and the crime scene. Arnie told his best friend that he saw William Thompson in the neighborhood while he was visiting his parents. Arnie told his friend that William Thompson later spent the night with him, and it is believed by the friend that they engaged in some type of relations. The next morning, William Thompson told Arnie that what occurred that night was the first and last time it would happen. Arnie told his friend that William was wearing a pair of his shorts, t-shirt, and flip-flops when he left the morning after spending the night with him. A pair of shorts T-shirt and flip-flops were found by police in a closed washing machine in Arnie's condo during a search of the crime scene. Arnie spoke to his friend by phone on the night Arnie was murdered and told him that he was excited because William Thompson was coming over to see him again. That is the last time known that anyone ever heard from Arnie. Chicago police responded to the building where Arnie lived on a report of gunshots at about 1:30 a.m. on the same day that Arnie's body was discovered. Chicago police did not locate anything suspicious while at the building, so they left at that time. The Chicago police crime scene technicians did not find any evidence tying William Thompson or his brother Yusuf Brown to the scene of Arnie's murder. William Thompson and Yusuf Brown were arrested in central Illinois after committing numerous violent crimes and Arnie's vehicle was left at the scene of one of those crimes. William Thompson was wearing clothes that belonged to Arnie when he was arrested. The crime lab tied DNA from blood found on one of the socks that William was wearing to Arnie Graves. This crime scene in central Illinois included the murder of Chief Deputy Tommy Martin from the Douglas County Sheriff's Office, for which William Thompson received natural life in prison. Yusuf Brown received 60 years for his role in other violent crimes that occurred during this crime spree. However, how the murder case of Arnie Graves concluded was extremely disappointing, to Detective Nolan and the family of Arnie Graves. No one has ever been charged with Arnie's homicide.
2: William Thompson, from what I read in the articles, William Thompson gave some half-assed excuse that he had a bad time that day because of his father's death. And that's just absolute nonsense. This guy was fried on PCP. He admitted that he was on PCP. The unfortunate thing about the whole thing is that Yusef Brown was picked up by his brother after the murder. As far as I can tell, Yusef Brown was sleeping at home on the west side when his brother showed up with Ernie Graves' car and said, come on, let's go take a ride. We're going to go down and hit some colleges. And Yusuf is like, well, I don't know what's going on, but, you know, anything's better to get out of here. And looking back at Yusuf Brown's rap sheet, Yusuf Brown was just stealing narcotics. Yusuf Brown had absolutely no violence or gun charges in any of his rap sheet. It was just local drug dealing on, on his own block. So his brother actually put him in a trick bag. From what I understand after the fact, William Thompson had actually sworn out an affidavit to the judge. His brother didn't participate in the murder, but he was vague about it. He said that Arnie Graves was already dead when I picked my brother up, but he still never came out and said that he did it. So the case was completely frustrating for me. The Cook County state's attorneys refused to prosecute this case, and I had Mrs. Graves calling me up all the time. Uh, which was which was very difficult you know I hit the state's attorney said he's already been charged uh, with murder he he's gotten life his brother's got 60 years you know he said what does this woman want us to do does this woman want us to kill him twice and I said that's not the point the state's attorneys uh, refused to charge my case so I brought it all the way up the chain I finally brought it to the chief of detectives and He hand carried the case to the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, and they said no. I understand the premise of not doubling up on this guy because of the cost of uh, prosecuting him for another murder, but it still didn't give any justice to the family. The mother and the father wanted justice, and they don't feel like they got it, regardless of whether he was doing life or not. And that always bothered me that I couldn't help out this old man and he's you know, and he subsequently died of cancer without his son's case ever being charged. I mean ultimately in, in the long run, you know, they're both still in custody, but I absolutely got it. But when you're looking at it from the family's point of view, you know, they want their pound of flesh. You know, they want a closure to it. And they feel like he they they felt like he got away with it. He didn't, but he did.
0: Cops are only one part of the criminal justice system. There has to be a district attorney who is willing to prosecute. In fairness to the prosecutors who make these difficult decisions, they have very limited time and resources. And I doubt there are very many places in America that have more challenges than the Cook County court system where Chicago's located. However, if you break this down in the simplest terms, a cop was trying to bring justice for one family and Detective Nolan feels as though the system failed Arnie Graves, and his loved ones. Dawn and I had the opportunity to speak with Arnie's sister, Angelique Graves. She told us about their large and loving family. Arnie helped raise her son as his own, as well as help raise other nieces and nephews.
3: It was six of us. My mom and father had six kids. He was uh, fourth, and we was a Christian family. Um, We went to church every Sunday. He was a hard working young man. He, he started working at age 14. Um, he worked back and forth with my aunt. When he turned 16, he worked for um, the state and then UIC. And then from UIC, he got a job at the railroad. So he was a very home-found um, great person because he helped brought up uh, one of my sons, which was my biological son, as his own. He treated him as his own child, along as his nephew. And then we raised a couple of my nieces and nephews along the way. So he was a great man.
0: Arnie was very close with his mom and dad, and Angelique and Arnie were really tight and spoke multiple times a day. Angelique considered Arnie to be her best friend, and she was very proud of the man he was.
3: He always came back home. You know, he moved out. He always came home every day and helped out with chores for my mom and my dad. We spoke every day, just about every other hour, if I wasn't at work or if he wasn't at work. And that was my best friend. He had a great heart. He smiled a lot. He dressed for success every day. He spoke very high in authority to people. He would have gave you his shirt off his back to help you out. We used to feed the needy. We used to give out book bags every year. We was advocate for the community in the Lundell neighborhood. And this is what he got by living in the neighborhood.
0: Angelique said that Arnie's murder hit her mom the hardest because her mom never thought that she and Arnie's dad would have to bury a child. One reason that her family was hurt was because the family of the alleged suspects who had Arnie's car after Arnie was murdered, went to their church.
3: The young man's mom was church members of ours. So it it was very hurtful. And after all of that happened in 2007, I was very depressed and I left the church because I was so hurt to look at the people, family that did that to my brother. So, you know, it took me a little while to get myself back together. But my mother and my father kept pressing on. But before my dad died, he said he just, you know, hurtful and that no justice was done for my brother before he passed away.
0: So Arnie's and Angelique's dad died of cancer without ever seeing justice for the murder of his son. Their dad carried the pain of his murder the rest of his life. Her elderly mom continues to carry that pain.
3: My dad just called cancer and he said he just was hurt after my brother died and it just never was the same after my brother passed. Our life never was the same.
0: Angelique received word from the Cook County State's Attorney's Office that they would not be bringing charges against the alleged suspect because the alleged suspect was already serving significant prison time for the crime spree in central Illinois and it would cost too much money to prosecute for Arnie's murder. According to Angelique, The Cook County State's Attorney's Office was under the direction of State's Attorney Anita Alvarez at the time of this decision.
3: Anita Alvarez told them that it was just too much money and that they wasn't going to bring the case back. So my brother, they never brought the case back to Chicago. It was always about money, 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 the cost that it was going to bring it back. Caution shouldn't even have no effect to it because a young man lost his life and people lost a loved one that everyone in the neighborhood actually loved.
0: Since there was no one charged with her brother's homicide, Angelique hopes that talking about his murder will help her heal. She thinks about him daily. As Dawn was thanking Angelique for talking with us, you can hear the heartbreak and anguish in Angelique's voice as she cries for closure.
1: Oh, it, it sounds like your brother was a, a wonderful man, Angelique. I appreciate you talking with us today. Yeah, and
3: I'm still here today, but I wanted to talk to you today because maybe this can get me some close. Because, you know, I didn't have a day that I don't think about my brother because we had big plans. And don't nobody know how depression feels. Not to have him with me. But through God, I've been strong and I've been pressing away because he was truly my best friend. I never, I don't talk to people no more. I don't deal with people because he was my truly friend. I don't do things. I don't, if, if you see me today, I don't be on, I be on Facebook, but you never see me be with anyone because that was my heart. I just want some closure. Maybe you guys can help me to get closure, but I never got closure.
0: We pray that Angelique, her mother, and the rest of their family finds as much closure and peace as possible. This concludes episode one. Part two of the Midwest murder series will focus on the numerous violent crimes that were committed by William B. Thompson and Yusuf Kareem Brown during their crime spree in central Illinois.
1: And Midwest Murders Part 3 will focus on a double homicide that is still unsolved 13 years later. How the crime spree by William Thompson and Yusuf Brown relates to that double homicide surprised us and we're sure it will surprise you too.
0: Thanks for listening. You can help us fight crime by joining the True Crime Takedown team through Patreon. You can join the Takedown team by going to crime slash team our patreon takedown team members get exclusive episodes audio extras bonus content and much more pictures and sources for this podcast can be found on our website please follow us on facebook and instagram at true crime takedown our theme music the takedown is by mitch marlowe we'll be back with a new episode soon True Crime Takedown is a production of Crime Fighters Media.